Payments Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Fraud trends are constantly changing depending on the environment, so how can we possibly be expected to keep one step ahead? And more importantly, how does this impact the success rate of payment fraud attempts within businesses? Will there ever be a clear winner in the fight against fraud? We have a special episode on today's Payments Podcast. James Richardson, Head of Market Development for Risk and Fraud at Bottomline, is discussing the current trends as well as what organisations can do about fraud with Amber Burridge, Head of Fraud Intelligence at CFAS, a not-for-profit UK organisation who are leaders in fraud prevention. Amber, why don't we start the discussion um, around the impact of fraud? Um, I would love to get your views and thoughts on um, really what you've seen, what and specifically kind of what's changed over the last the last few years, maybe last five years, and um, let's see where we go. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's been a very interesting time within the fraud threat landscape, uh, particularly over the last five years. Um, we've definitely seen in terms of sort of the numbers of application fraud that we see actually has declined over the years. And I think the issue for that is because actually organisations are getting better at detecting falsehoods and applications. So therefore, criminals are kind of turning to using genuine identities or, or genuine accounts. And essentially, one of the biggest problems that the UK faces at the moment is around identity fraud. So we've essentially seen it go up like 32% in the last five years and kind of up 18% compared to last year. And we know that sort of plastic cards are predominantly targeted, predominantly around that older age group. I think there is a a bit of a a perception that this older age group can have a better credit history and therefore they're going to be good prime targets to use their details to apply for products. But I think one of the key things to really think about here is actually it's not just individuals that are targeted for like identity fraud and identity theft. The number of companies that we have seen that have been recorded as victims of impersonation is high. So for us as an organisation, our members reported over 200 companies as being impersonated last year. And if you think about it, it's it's mainly to obtain those kind of products that actually you need to facilitate further fraud. So essentially obtaining finance was one of the key things that came out last year and actually having a look at some of the products that have been abused by these sort of false identities are in relation to company loans uh, and also company credit cards. Now I think it's key here around the kind of the move that we've seen within the fraud landscape is predominantly because a lot of things are becoming digital now. The amount of data that is now available, uh, we're very transparent with our data that we have. And and actually, I think one of the key things for us going forward is actually how do we make that kind of personal information, that company information, less valuable? You know, we see quite a lot of discussion on sort of dark web forums, for instance, particularly at the moment with the current COVID situation, where they are looking for business accounts. Now, the reason for this is obviously with a lot of the stimulus packages that we're seeing at the moment. So, for instance, the retail and hospitality grants, also discretionary grants that are coming out at the moment, bounce back loans. Criminals are actively going out there to seek these type of business accounts to essentially launder money. Uh, and that's one of the things that are a real big issue for sort of the banking industry in particular is, is the aspect of money mulling. And we have seen a a bit of an increase, actually, in company accounts that are being used for money mulling. 
So quite often detailing themselves as wholesalers, because that way it kind of gets around the point that they're receiving large amounts of money into their accounts because they're a wholesaler. That's what you expect. And I think the other key thing for us at the moment is around account takeover. So I kind of mentioned application fraud going down. But some of the techniques that we're seeing now are actually abusing accounts held by other people. So a 34% increase uh, compared to 2018 of the number of accounts being abused in 2019. And we predominantly see this in the kind of telecoms industry, but also online retail industry. And the reason why? Well, as we're moving more digital, things like smishing campaigns, spoofing attacks as well, where web pages are being copied to facilitate harvesting of information. And like I said before, it's not just about the individual. We've seen this particularly during the COVID period where businesses are kind of receiving these phishing emails, particularly if they're potentially eligible for some of these loans that are coming out at the moment. You know, receiving an email to say you need to fill out your details here. What's then happening is that that criminal is then using those information to fraudulently apply for a stimulus package. And, you know, you could be sat there, particularly if you need that particularly at the moment with the economic uncertainty, you're sitting there waiting for it. And actually, a criminal has used your details to apply for that product. I was going to say that the action fraud highlighted a report, I think it was at the end of May or beginning of June. So really early on into like the whole kind of lockdown process where we pretty much you know, we maybe were only a few weeks into understanding what the stimulus package would be and how organisations could legitimately access it. There were already over four and a half million of coronavirus-related scams taking place within within the UK, um, which I think just is to your point exactly right. It's yeah, you know, I think these the fraudsters are pretty agile, and you know what they what they may have been looking at a year ago or four years ago. This is, uh, they're in a whole new world of, dare I say it in quotes, opportunity um, with, uh, with, with the COVID situation. And um, the stimulus package, it, I mean, it's just unbelievably criminal how, uh, how the fraudsters are uh, leveraging either loopholes in process or, um, or kind of recognising the air gaps that exist between the technologies um, but just taking full advantage of it, right? And just, you know, filtering off the funds. Yeah, I think that the point we need to remember, actually, is that a lot of these techniques existed before the pandemic. They've really come into their own in the last three or four years. However, what the pandemic has done, as, as you rightly say, is kind of open the doors for a wider audience to, to target. There are you know, it's not a select few that are vulnerable now. Actually, a lot of us are kind of susceptible and vulnerable because of the current situation. And actually, what we've seen is like with the advancing technology is that these attacks can be deployed en masse. And all it takes is for one person to fill out their details on one link. And actually, you've got a wealth of information there. And I think that is the key thing that we're seeing at the moment is that actually sort of for, for employees as well that are currently working remotely, they're a great target for a lot of these criminals at the moment because, you know, actually your your remote workers are at home. And what we've seen is kind of business staff are being duped into believing, for example, that their IT department is contacting them and they want to take control of their computer. 
So they're kind of using some of these remote desktop viewers to have a look and see exactly what's going on in a great way to steal credentials. And it's it's the same with kind of the way business has changed, you know, because we've all gone into this working from home situation. It's if you receive an email from who you think is like your chief exec or some senior manager saying you need to make a payment, uh, can you do it for me? Can you do it ASAP? It, it was very difficult right at the beginning of COVID where a lot of kind of businesses and sort of uh, employees were getting used to working from home. It was very hard to detect whether or not that was legitimate or not, because actually with the current situation, everything had a great urgency to it. So it's very hard to distinguish between whether or not that could potentially be a, a sort of a criminal on the other side asking you to do that. Because one of the key things we usually say to look out for around particularly kind of these phishing emails, if there's a sense of urgency, well, actually what COVID has bought is a bit of an urgency about everything being done at the moment, which makes it very difficult. You know, it, it makes it hard as an employee. But I guess it, it kind of brings me on to my next point as well about kind of some of the insider threat that we see. So it's not just an external issue that we've seen over the last five years, the, the the rise of internal fraud. So that's a great point. Um, and I was going to ask you about, you know, your views of insider fraud, because um, you just mentioned about employees working from home. We're in a completely different setup now. You know, everyone's working at home. You've got finance teams working at home, treasury departments working from home, people that are either kind of operationally involved in transferring funds or you know it's just kind of part of their um, part of their division part of their function um, but the point is is that people are sat at home um, with you know there's layers layers of security and layers of defense um, provided by a company but it, then equally you know are they more susceptible to um, threats from the outside so um, the reason for mentioning that is that you know, kind of the way in which you'd look at insider fraud perhaps changes given the um, kind of the circumstance and the environment that we're, we're that we're currently in. But what's your what's your view of the whole insider scenario? So I think if we look at the kind of the the pre-COVID situation in terms of kind of the insider threat, if you like, so the the majority of cases that we see are usually in relation to kind of dishonest action. So you're looking at the likes of kind of theft from the the customer or theft from the employee. One of the interesting things that has come out quite recently is the number that are recorded for for manipulating third party accounts. So it could be changing an overdraft account limit or changing the interest rates applied to an account. I think in this instance, it, it was quite interesting to see actually that the number of sort of individuals we saw recorded for this uh, were increased by 13% in 2019 compared to uh, 2018. What the current situation now means is that actually we do have a number of staff that have access to a lot of sensitive information with a very difficult way of kind of monitoring them because actually what is the new normal now? You know, we, we don't usually do a nine to five. I mean, I certainly haven't since I've been working from home. I haven't been doing a nine to five. Um, and it, that makes it very difficult uh, for organisations to monitor what their staff are doing. But also, in a way, you have uh, less control of keeping your, your staff safe from being approached, uh, as an example. So 
you know, we've had stories of kind of staff being approached by sort of organised groups to, to give them information or to make changes to accounts or facilitate transactional fraud. And if you're working from home, you don't have that safety net of being within the office. Um, and we know that some of our some of these employees that are targeted are often in kind of low paid jobs, but also, you know, they, they live in areas where actually, dare I say it, some of their neighbours are not very friendly. Uh, so actually, in terms of that organised crime network operating around them, it, it makes them quite susceptible to being brought into that world. I think one of the things like we kind of mentioned, obviously, we do have security measures in place. So, for instance, I mean, I I access my work for a remote desktop, as an example. But if you think about your Wi-Fi, actually, how secure is your Wi-Fi? You know, have you got the most up to date kind of uh, firewalls on there to detect some of this malware? And the reason I say that it was quite an interesting conversation I had the other day with someone who said, well, actually, what about the Alexa devices? What about all these kind of these voice recognition devices that are in your your houses when you're having conference calls? Where's that data then being stored? And I suppose that's that's really made me think, actually, about what devices I have that potentially listen, because this is the world we live in now. We live in a world of Internet of Things. You know, I, I learned about sort of blue smurfing and blue jacking the other day where actually it's your Bluetooth that's being hacked. Um, and actually, the, the surprising thing is that a lot of businesses, particularly at the moment, uh, are still actually sending things unsecure. They're still sending files which are unsecure even via Bluetooth because it's an easier way of getting it from a work phone to a, a desktop. But also in, in terms of kind of sharing personal information, I think one of the things we really need to consider at the moment is actually we may not be in the office, but we need to operate as if we are in the office still. And if anything, um, definitely with sort of those members of staff at the moment, we need to check in on staff working remotely. I mean, my poor team must be bored of me talking to them all the time. But it's just to check because obviously we all have access to all this sensitive data. And there is a question, particularly if you live in shared accommodation, you know, if it's a group of people that you know, then it's easier. But if it's like, for instance, you've applied on an advert to live in a house share, and you don't really know sort of the people you're sharing with, you know, that makes it very difficult if you pop away from your desk, and I, I say that in quotes, to make a cup of tea or go to the toilet. If you don't lock your computer like you would in the office, that that opens up a can of worms for someone to go traipsing through your, your laptop, essentially. Yeah, it's, that's that's such a good point. And, it, and it's funny because I think we just tend to forget that, you know, I love, I love your, I love your comment that you know we just gotta kind of um, imagine that we are still working in an office. It's just that we're at home. That is absolutely the right way of doing it. I'm with, I'm with you a hundred percent. The that we've pulled out a stat actually from our business payments barometer that we did, which talked about the different types of organisations that would have employee behaviour monitoring, which sounds a bit, a bit big brother, but actually. It's, it's, it's kind of partly about, yes, kind of securing, you know, transactions and traffic, but also to kind of make sure that um, um, policies are being upheld, that, that um, you know, people are locking PCs or, you know, it's all about safeguarding. Well, we look at it as safeguarding payments, but I know it's kind of so much more than that as well. But 
just comparing, say, this year's report to last year's report, um, or actually just comparing different types, different sizes of organisations, 27% of enterprise um, businesses are using employee behaviour monitoring um, versus 18% of small businesses. I, I guess I'm not surprised by that stat. It does is something that we've talked about year over year as seeing kind of an emerging trend. Because um, it's almost like you, ca- you just can't stand still on this stuff. You've got to recognise that um, frauds are evolving, uh, frauds are evolving, security standards are evolving, and what you had maybe three years ago might not be appropriate in what is kind of 2020. But equally, I wonder whether today's situation, you know, d- does it meet the standard of, COVID 2020, where, you know, your policy for locking PCs might be, um, you know, might have a two minute shutdown, but actually does it need to be a 30 second shutdown if you're in a, um, you know, if you're in a shared working environment? Yeah, and I think, dare I say it as well, actually, there is also a degree of kind of establishing a bit of an anti-fraud culture. Um, Because certainly from what we see, you know, kind of internal controls can do so much. And admittedly, that is how the majority of our insider frauds got identified. But I think there is a degree as well of this anti-fraud culture, because one of the interesting things that we found from our research is that actually isn't just kind of the newbies in the workplace. Actually, they're, they're quite well established individuals that are kind of they know the system and they know how to avoid detection. And I think, you know, kind of touching on what you say, actually, are our measures appropriate for 2020? I mean, I think I, I mentioned it about the, the the monitoring in terms of what is a normal nine to five. Or do you have a policy that says no employee should access this type of file outside of normal working hours? I think, you know, we talk about it being big brotherish, but I think um, sort of looking at the report, it talks about kind of knowing your employees as well. And that's one of the key things for us is, you know, you can do your initial screening and an individual might actually come back as like being fine. But how many checks do you then do once someone is in employment? Do you regularly screen to see actually is is there any kind of are there any trigger points, I guess, that may lead to someone committing internal fraud? Uh, And that's something that kind of as a business is really something you need to think about building into your sort of policies and procedures, because actually, you know, we've we've launched a IFD enhanced uh, program. So it's our internal fraud database where you can check an individual to see if they are on sort of been loaded by another organization for internal fraud. But also you can see if they're listed for any other types of fraud as well. And I think this is key really to understanding the risk and also maybe having that that frank conversation with your employees around being open and honest as an organisation. Because, you know, it might be that actually their circumstances have changed. So actually, you know, can you offer support in that circumstance? But also, does that mean as an employer, there are steps you need to take um, to mitigate that risk? So I use Morrison's as a great example in this, because... Um, if for people that might not know, there was an individual working for Morrison's who actually um, was up for disciplinary, but they still enabled this individual to have access to a lot of personal information. And what this individual then did was release 100,000 employees' details on the internet. Now, if you think about that, that's one person 
but think of how many lives they've then impacted because of that. Uh, Morrison's actually quite recently, because um, it went to like the uh, the Supreme, not Supreme Court, the, the High Court, and they actually agreed there that Morrison's weren't liable um, because actually, you know, they'd taken all they could do. And I think that's what they needed to prove. They did all they could. But it was a question as to whether or not the employer was actually responsible for that individual releasing that information. And that's just something businesses need to bear in mind, is that actually could the actions of one of your employees make you liable further down the line? Yeah. And I wonder, you know, you, you, you're talking about kind of knowing your employee. I guess the same, you know, you kind of want to have the same approach thinking about knowing your customer as well, right? Definitely. I think one of the things that we've definitely seen over the past year um, is actually, you know, kind of knowledge-based authentication is not, it's not sufficient anymore, mainly because of the fact that so much information is available online. I mean, the amount of information that people put on, say, social media about their pets' names, their children's names, where they got married. You know, if you think about security questions that you get asked, I mean, like, what is your maiden name as an example for, for a lot of females? And a lot of people kind of put as their Facebook name, sort of what their married name is, and then in brackets, what their previous name was. So you just think, well, there's a wealth of information out there. And one of the things I always think that as kind of professionals that we need to think about is what we do on LinkedIn. And we should definitely associate the same risks with LinkedIn as we do with Facebook. Because for instance, you know, the amount of information, but I I did a bit of a cleanse of mine, and I think I need to do it further, to be fair. Um, But you know, it's kind of one of those things, the amount of information we all put on LinkedIn, because you know, we want people to see our our skills. But then you just think actually, how much information does that reveal about ourselves, about our companies as well, don't forget. Um, it's, It's quite an interesting conversation to have really with employees around what they're putting on some of these social media platforms um not saying that you shouldn't be sharing but I think you need to be mindful of what your digital footprint is especially now which is why for instance you kind of um you mentioned in the report about know who you pay and you know that is absolutely vital now I think and I suppose it's it's how we adopt these mechanisms which will be interesting going forward yeah, definitely. On on the um, you know knowing who you pay, it just seems to be so so much more important now than ever before. I guess part not just around um, you know it's good practice, but frankly the payment infrastructure has changed around us so that many organisations aren't relying on a Bax three day payment cycle in order to kind of manage any issue they could kind of rely on the fact they had a slight buffer in time to identify something suspicious and then and then phone their bank and then and then pull the transaction that that luxury is completely evaporated in the world of faster payments which is just the world we live in now um you know i i you know anytime that i'm making a payment it goes pretty much immediately within a few seconds um and that's kind of it's just what we're used to um Anything slower than that is um, just doesn't quite feel right. Uh, but that does put the pressure on me to make sure that um, I've got I've applied the right level of diligence into making payments. And when I think about it, so I think about it as a consumer, and I want I want to kind of feel safe. I want to feel that 
someone's really looking out for um, my transactions going to the right person. I, I think as a business, it almost feels a little bit more challenging because you you, you know if, if you're multi-banked or depending on your setup or, or how you're you know how you're organised to make payments, it you end up having to kind of take a bit more responsibility and accountability for checking your payments thoroughly, not just relying on other players in the life cycle of settlement doing it for you. Um, I just wonder, you know, you mentioned about kind of knowing your customer and knowing your payment, what your what your thoughts are or your experience of kind of fraud scenarios in that in that space of you know payments. I think one of the things really that that we tend to see is kind of criminals do take advantage of loopholes. Um, so, for instance, you know, if one company's onboarding checks at the application stage are kind of a bit weak, then it, it kind of essentially rolls out, doesn't it? It's like a bit of a domino effect in terms of like everyone that's involved in that supply chain, essentially. Um, and I think that's that's kind of one of the difficulties that we have is ensuring, you know, that there is this pressure for us to do payments very quickly and for us to not sort of put any friction in that customer journey. But at the same time, we need to mitigate the risk of making that payment so quickly. You know, are you paying to who you think you're paying? And it's incredibly difficult now because some of the technology that we see sort of uh, we've had instances of, for instance, intercepting of one-time passcodes, which makes it really difficult if you're kind of trying to let that payment go through and you're like, well, I've, I've had confirmation of it, so it should be fine. It should go through. And, and, you know, that's one of the difficulties that we see for business at the moment is that technology is against us. <laughs> it is, on the one hand, it's a blessing because it means we can do things faster and there's more convenience. But on the other hand, and I don't want to sound like a technophobe, I know it's probably coming across a little bit like that. Um, but I think sometimes that that kind of convenience and that haste almost takes away the kind of that taking five minutes or five seconds to think, oh, actually, is this the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Is it going to the right person? The kind of normal logical steps that you would take and you know, it's, it's quite interesting how we kind of refer to that aspect as being a chimp brain, if you like. So it's that kind of, I need it, I want it, I've got to do it aspect. Um, whereas the kind of, the part that goes through all those steps, I think they call it like the computer part of your brain, if you like. You know, that that sometimes gets overtaken by the chimp brain, because actually that, that part is more powerful. So I, I kind of use that in a, a bit of a crude way, I guess. But I think it explains really how particularly at the moment with the current situation where there is a lot of demand to make payments very quickly. Um, so, for instance, if you take the, the local authority government stuff at the moment, there was a lot of pressure on local authorities to make those payments very, very quickly. Uh, and unfortunately, the situation we now have is that, we, you know, a lot of kind of post-checking is now going on, which in an ideal world, that wouldn't happen. You would do all your checks before payment. And I think it's, it's kind of key, really, I kind of mentioned it before about, you know, it is vital to do your due diligence at onboarding, but actually keep keep it going throughout that life cycle of, of kind of the client relationship, the customer relationship, because things like changing sort of the direction of where the payment is going, particularly if you've got a longstanding client and all of a sudden they're changing where they want that payment to go to, 
that should be a bit of a trigger to do some further checks. Yeah, definitely. Um, something you know, we've we've seen it um, certainly being a, in a, in the payments industry ourselves, and a and a, a technology provider that supports payments, but also um, kind of fraud detection. We we see this pinch. We see this pinch constantly about you know we want to be able to make super quick payments, but we are, we also want to make sure that there's levels of security around it and. Um, I just, I guess, just to kind of talk about knowing who you pay for a moment. There are, yeah, the industry has reacted, hasn't it? With, it, I mean, whilst it's taken time, this kind of witch super complaint um, a few years back, which as a consequence um, resulted in the industry announcement of confirmation of payee, um, which is just kind of coming into force now. Um, which is a great initiative, largely kind of um, biased towards retail payments. So, you know, the likes of you know, I, I, I made a payment to a to a friend that I've not paid before electronically the other day. Um, and it came up and said, you know, what's the account name? And it, it was verifying real time the account name against the sort code and the account number. Um, and it either matches exactly, does some form of fuzzy match or says no and if there's any kind of degree of you know not so sure about this then it pushes a question to me making the payment saying are you sure um but I, and i think you know on one hand i really applaud that sort of thing i think well number one it's absolutely critical we, we, we've got to have that in this day and age but what it is doing is it's pushing the liability onto the corporate to make the decision and verify their payment, verifying who they are, uh, sorry, ver verifying who they are paying. Um, it's a lot easier for me doing kind of one payment as a consumer. You go and do 10,000 payments as a corporate or 1,000 payments as a corporate, some people that you've not paid before, it's going to create some friction. Um, in the in the payment process, but you, I'm sure people will get round that. I know they will, and it's still the right thing to do. But um, the point is, I guess, organisations we've seen in, in some of the surveys are finding it harder to recover funds. And I think one of the things that confirmation of payee may well do, because it's not a silver bullet in, in acting on fraud, it will just prompt and challenge to see if if the payment is actually right to go through which 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 is good but it may well shift kind of liabilities around as well across the banking and the corporates any thoughts around uh kind of confirmation of payee um or you know kind of other in industry initiatives yeah i think confirmation of payee is kind of it's been welcomed actually by by a lot of um sort of organizations in all fairness but i think you know for for a business that's trying to adopt it uh sometimes it might seem a little bit difficult to start with and like you say if you're making payments on mass um it's kind of a bit of a we we don't know space at the moment i think because essentially in terms of the confirmation of payee you kind of get like a a yes match which you know ultimately means yep you can make the payment should be fine you got the no uh, close the match so you know it's it's kind of if if you recognize the name provided on the account then you can proceed with it it kind of puts the onus on the person making the payment doesn't it you know, actually, you can do it if if you think it's right. You know, it's 
it's an indicator. Like you said, it's not a silver bullet. It's an indicator. So actually, you know, what technology sort of detection platforms have you got that you can make real use of? You know, it's one of those kind of, it's a bit like sort of if you match to to the data that you have on SciFast, it's not necessarily saying you should automatically decline, but it's saying actually do further investigation. And at the end of the day, it's kind of up to your risk appetite as well as to whether or not you want to go ahead with that. I think from an individual level, it is great. Um, so for like from a personal perspective, the amount of APP fraud that we have seen over the past year has been horrendous. You know, the, the volumes that have come through that. I am quite intrigued to see how it would work from a business perspective, if I'm honest. I think it is a step in the right direction. Um, but I think actually, you know, we need to give businesses support in how to use this kind of technology going forward. Um, because, you know, it's it's educating our businesses around sort of the regulations, the initiatives that are there. But also, I think there are other aspects that you can do as a business as well. So, for instance, that, that kind of without banging the drum on it, that due diligence part, particularly if you're making regular payments, is absolutely vital. And same with like taking part in open banking as well. You know, the, the sharing of information is absolutely vital at the moment. And I think one of the things really to kind of, we always talk about data matching. And I think one of the things to also remember is that actually we should share intelligence as well on some of the methods we're using on some of those key threat actors. Because as a business, how do you know what to look for if you know you've not been told in a way? You can you can try and use algorithms within technology, but you also sometimes need that little bit of intelligence to say actually these are kind of some of the key uh, MOs that we're seeing in this space that actually you should look out for. Here are the key threat actors. So it's it's got to be used in tandem with all your other checks that you do. Definitely. It, I, um, I think as the years have gone on, especially, uh, you know, kind of an overlapping um, suite of services is far more appealing and appropriate than just a one size fits all Um I just don't believe in that, and I think I think um, I think it's quite healthy to have um, you know slightly overlapping solutions um, that give you degrees of confidence. I, I completely agree with your point about risk based approach. You, you people are going to take their own, gonna, they're going to make their own conclusions based on the information that they've got. Um, you know, I was going to mention something about the confirmation of payee. It again came from our barometer that um, only one in two organisations were aware of confirmation of pay as an industry initiative, and only one in five small businesses um, had had heard uh, of these kind of industry terms. And um, you know, we're in the industry, so we kind of someone says COP, we kind of know what they're on about. But you say you, you shout out COP to any other corporate or individual and they'll kind of look at you a little bit funny. <laughs> what do you think of, you know, how do we get this information out? How do we educate people around this? One of the things that we've sort of definitely identified over the years is because it's great that we're all keen to get this fraud prevention advice out there. Um, I think, however, like, as you say, with all these initiatives coming out, it's it's very difficult to know which one is best for your business 
Um, which one should you follow? And I think it, it is difficult. I mean, you know, who do you turn to? Do you turn to your bank to give you that advice? Or do you kind of go with what other people in the industry are saying? I think you need to do your research in terms of what best fits your business, uh, essentially. So for instance, you know, doing that kind of cross checking element, you know, can you afford to do that as an organisation? Can you afford to put a little bit more friction within that payment journey? Um, for for like does it outweigh the the kind of risks of the fraudulent the potential fraudulent payments coming through i think one of the things that really struck me from your report actually is around the numbers of sort of respondents that basically accepted fraud as part of their day-to-day business that's so that show shouldn't be the case you know i think for me i think it was like 58 percent of those that you spoke to kind of saw financial loss due to payment fraud as part of parcel of running your business fraud is a crime you know and actually without reporting it it makes it very difficult to understand the bigger picture of what is going on because actually you know those payments could be going on to fund things like organized crime and i think this is where kind of sort of if you're part of a trade body for instance or if you're part of a kind of fraud prevention community this is really, really useful for, for you as a business, as a small enterprise even, because you can get the kind of facts around all these different initiatives coming out. Um, so, for instance, you know, if you're, you're part of a, a trade union, actually they can help give you some guidance around sort of implementing some of these things. I think it, you shouldn't be afraid to branch out as well. We're, we're so used to working in silos. For me, it is about talking to people, uh, sort of share, like I said, sharing intelligence is absolutely vital, uh, which is one of the things sort of with our, we've got community membership now. So if you can't provide a sort of fraud case to our database, actually you can share intelligence that you're seeing and get the views from like your, your peers, if you like, around what solutions are the best solutions for you to tackle particular problems. I think we need to get better at doing that. We are making some headway. Um, but like you said, in terms of kind of understanding what sort of things like confirmation of payee and, and kind of payee requests and all this stuff that's out there, it's it's very difficult for you as a business to understand actually which one is best for your business model. Do you just deploy all of them or or do you take like a couple of them? I mean, you know, from talk, people that you spoke to within your research, actually, was there anything that really came across from what they were saying? You know, just to, to link that to the to the stat, um, people are saying, you know, 58%, you're absolutely right, 58% of the decision makers admitted to seeing financial loss as, you know, kind of that payment fraud, just part and parcel of running the business. I, I'm sort of semi-mortified at that because we, <laughs> it shouldn't be okay that that is the way in which we look at the world. It shouldn't be that it's okay that fraud is part of our operational cost because, number one, it just jacks the prices up of everything that we do. So we do feel it. Whether or not we feel it directly, we do feel it. But on a more serious note, and exactly to your point, it's related to financial crime. So there is a, you know, there is a, uh, there, there is a really bad vibe coming as a result of it that is fueling um, financial crime in the economy and that's not okay and culturally I think we kind of got going to get into this kind of um, mindset that 
it's not just about the monetary loss. Um, and please don't just think of it like that. Um, it's far deeper. Um, and, um, you know, I think organisations, corporates especially, it's a, it's not in your face. It's just not as visible like that. Um, it's almost in. It's almost like an invisible um, uh, kind of crime. Um, and when you look at the values, um, and whilst the the volume of incidents have gone down, the values have gone up um, for many different sized organisations. So, you know, you're talking about um, medium and large businesses um, being he- being hit on average at about a quarter of a million pound a year. At what level did that become kind of like an acceptable loss? It's, um, I think it's really, it's really tough to read. Um, it, it, uh, firstly, I kind of, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased that we're so honest when we're sort of seeing these, this set of information come through because it is actually really challenging me as someone within the industry to want to really tackle this. And I know, you know, Amber, you'll feel the same and others listening will, we, we, you know, we just can't be okay with this. Um, I do think, though, and we've, we, I've certainly talked about this in the past, that um, this kind of viewing this sort of metaphor of fraud being a balloon, you squeeze it in one end and it's going to grow in another. Um, my, my worry with some of the latest technology that's coming on, if anything, what's happening, kind of what we're seeing across any technology vendor, forget bottom line for a minute, but any technology vendor in, in, in the space, um, more solutions are available more readily. Things are more cloud-oriented by default, and therefore there's kind of quicker uptime, quicker accessibility to get hold of technology that will help, which is awesome, all for it. Um, the challenge, I think, is going to be... Um, the laggards in the process so those that are actually kind of they'll just wait a little bit to sort of see the technology get adopted and then move on i worry that there's going to be this really long tail between those that have embraced the technology and actually those that um aren't embracing the technology they're going to become targets they will become you know there will be ways of the criminals identifying those that haven't got the latest defences, and they will, you know, it'll be, it'll be like the the houses down the street that don't have the burglar alarm. They will be the ones that will be obvious. They will be the ones that have got their window open, and people will be able to see it. Maybe it's related to their digital footprint. It goes back to your comment about LinkedIn. You know, identifying who is in an organisation. You can do that pretty easily in LinkedIn. You can identify who is the financial controller within an organisation. Hell, you can go over to Facebook and then find out if they're on holiday anytime soon, and then and then why not impersonate them to, um, you know, then say right, I am this person of this CFO of this organisation, and and start to this is you know this is how some of the um, the the uh, um, this is how some of the fraud start right is it's is it's about leveraging the digital um, kind of footprints to the criminal's advantage, um, I guess. It'd just be as we're starting to kind of close out our conversations, it would be get, good to get your thoughts about um, how the laggards deal with, um, you know, dealing how they deal with the problem, how you avoid getting left behind. Maybe that's the better question. 
Yeah, I think it's, um, so going back to your point, actually, it's quite interesting now sort of about finding out who works in kind of financial departments and that kind of thing, because we have seen during COVID that the kind of traditional business email compromise situation of, of kind of going to those more senior um, sort of managers within organisations has actually now gone to those who actually work within financial departments. Uh, and we've seen that slight shift, although you know, potentially the payments might not be as high as if you went at that higher level, they are getting quite a good bang for their buck. And I think, you know, in terms of, I don't think necessarily for a lot of people, it is in relation to kind of not wanting to adopt all the technology in the world, because technology can only help you so far, I think. I think there is a fear of of potentially the cost of it, um, which particularly for smaller organisations is very difficult you know, in terms of trying to get that on board, which is why actually kind of using your platform, so bottom line uh, platform is is kind of a start, but also, you know, I keep banging on about it, sharing intelligence as well, because actually if you're doing monitoring yourself and you know what the fraud threats are hitting the industry, then you know to look out for them as well. Um, I think there's a, a piece of around education for us as, like, as businesses as well, in all fairness, in terms of what to look out for it's very hard to keep on top of the latest like um cyber threats because they change so significantly uh, and they're so quick but obviously do make use of resources like the national cyber security center which have the latest kind of from a cyber perspective the latest fraud threats and for instance at the moment we've at SciFast, we've got like a kind of a web page talking about the threats from a COVID perspective. You know, you can arm yourself with all the knowledge as well. And that's that's key to part of this. Um, I think in terms of technology, do invest because, you know, we see, for example, from our members who, who kind of joined our membership, they saved £1.5 billion last year. And that was through data matching. You know, that that's powerful. Um and I'd say, you know, if, if that's not an incentive to join some kind of fraud prevention community or deploy some kind of fraud detection software, I don't know what is. Because the amount of money we lose a year to fraud is frightening. Um, they haven't done a, an updated sort of fraud indicator, but sort of the last one in 2017 hit £190 billion. Pounds. You know, it's a significant amount of money that we lose to fraud on a daily basis, dare I say. Um, if not, I think we, we've worked out that literally one fraud is committed every three minutes. So that's like essentially less time than it takes to boil an egg. That's how many frauds we get a day. Um, and, you know, I think if you, if you can't empower yourself to detect some of this fraud, because, uh, you know, I see that a lot of um, sort of the respondents find it difficult to recover the funds. If you're finding it difficult to recover them, try and prevent them from going out in the first place. And that's kind of a key takeaway from me is don't be afraid to, to join <laughs> to join a kind of a community, uh, a prevention community or even invest, because essentially you will save money by doing so. Brilliant. Amber, thank you so much for the conversation. It's been really good to chat through the, the different items here. Um, thanks so much. No, thank you. Always a pleasure. An interesting topic, I'm sure you'll agree, with some vital data points to compare. Both James and Amber highlight some best practice techniques which would be worth consideration to digest and implement for any business.
Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But in the meantime, you can listen to more episodes on all things payments at the touch of a button using your preferred provider. And we'll see you all next time. Payments Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.